WPFW, Washington. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and the daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but they are not from you. And though they are with you, they belong not to you. Good evening, and welcome to another edition of On Parenting. Good evening and welcome to On Parenting here at WPFW 89.3 Pacifica Radio in the nation's capital. I'm your host for this evening's show, Jack Petrash. It bears mentioning again and again that children's lives today are markedly different from the childhood we knew growing up. Children's lives are busier, fuller, more stressful, and more complex. I was reminded of this speaking with a parent recently, a father who was saying that he remembered from his childhood his father waking him up on Saturday mornings. His father would wake him up in the bed, wrestling him and tickling him. And he said, and I just would stop and think, my father is home all day. And when I heard him say that, it reminded me of how long all day was when we were children, how time just seemed to stretch endlessly, how long the summer was, how long a weekend was, or a rainy Saturday. And I don't think it's like that for children today, and it's just a different world for them. So we're going to be speaking tonight with a special guest, Kim John Payne. He's Kim, Kim is a school counselor, private family counselor, and a therapist. He has worked with issues related to bullying and social inclusion in schools in the U.S. and Canada. And he is the director of the Waldorf Collaborative Counseling Program at Antioch University. But more important till tonight's show, Kim is the author of an excellent new book, Simplicity Parenting, Using the Extraordinary Power of Less to Raise Calmer, Happier, and More Secure Kids. I want to welcome you tonight, Kim. Oh, it's lovely to be with you again, Jack. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Kim, I've just been so impressed with your new book, and I just wanted to ask you, how did you come about writing this book? You know, the journey to um, in any, any book, um, regardless whether it's written or unwritten, is... Um, Always an interesting one, isn't it? And for me, the, uh, the starting point of this book began way back when I was actually working with kids in inner cities. I was working with gang prevention. And I, and I noticed how, how stressed these kids uh, appeared. And I was taking classes at the time in something, an emerging field known as PTSD, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. And... Um, I asked the professor at the time, you know, is, is it possible that, that, that more than war veterans, other populations like my kids in my group home that I was working with with gang intervention, is it possible that they could be suffering from trauma because they were nervous? All the things that the, that the professor was telling us, you know, they were nervous, they were jumpy, they were, they were kind of in that well-known fight or flight. They were a bit hypervigilant and over-controlling. It's kind of implosive and explosive with their anger. Didn't know what was going to happen next. And uh, back in those days, my my, actual, my martial arts training was more important than my, <laughs> my psychology training. Actually. <laughs> and, um, and and the answer he gave me was was like, yeah, it's not impossible. And then later on, when I um, volunteered and I worked in refugee camps in Southeast Asia, particularly in the Thai Cambodian refugee camps, I saw again kids who were nervous and jumpy and hypervigilant and over-controlling. And, and I could sort of make sense of it, Jack, because, uh, because these, were, these were kids in a, coming out of a, a war zone. But then when I moved, I moved to um, England, and I, was, I had a counselling practice in the west of London, and this was sort of the end of this, of the, of, oh, well, at least where this, where this story started to clarify, is that again, kids were walking through my door, and they were nervous, vig uh, hypervigilant, controlling, jumpy, really 
trying to control their their siblings, trying to control situations at school with their parents, and, and they were getting into trouble. And yet, when I looked into their biography, there wasn't anything that that would suggest they'd had those big life-threatening events that would cause post-traumatic stress issues. And and, and a thought occurred to me, and it was, a, and I didn't have too many advanced degrees at this time, so I could have a simple thought. Um, and uh, um, the thought was, well, you know, I wonder if this could be cumulative. I wonder if this could be a small series of stresses that build a kind of a, a fairly big and major charge in the child's life, because these kids were just ordinary kids. But I, I came to think of them as, as they, were, they were living in, like, what I thought of as the undeclared war on childhood where it began for me because I wondered like you know what can be done if, if, if stress can be cumulative what can actually be be done and I and, and again a simple thought was well what about we piece by piece try and take the stress away and some really remarkable things happened is that these kids who were all you know ADD ODD OCD D, a lot of D's <laughs> a lot of D's and these kids who were either formally diagnosed with all sorts of issues or on that spectrum, so to speak, they started just becoming quirky again. Just because you know, every every child's quirky, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you've been you've been working with kids for, for you know many decades, Jack. You know, you're a seasoned professional. You notice how I avoid the word old there. Um, we're both pretty seasoned, and we know, and any parent knows, all kids are, are quirky. You've got three kids in your family, they're all going to have different quirks. And what we started noticing was that as these kids had, had their lives simplified and the stress taken out, to some extent, some stress is fine, of course, it's, it's unavoidable, but when, when those cumulative stresses were taken out, the kids were not... They didn't just go back to being quirky. And here's the, here's the remarkable thing, is that their gift started, or their genius, I started thinking of it as their genius, started mm-hmm. being revealed. For example, kids who were hyperactive, their quirk is, is that they're busy. But their genius is their movers and shakers. Only their timing is good when they're not stressed. Oh, what an interesting thought. Uh, we're speaking tonight with Kim Payne here on On Parenting. He is our guest and the author of a new book, Simplicity Parenting. Kim, let's continue this thought. So we've got hyperactive kids, but when we simplify their lives, we find that their quirkiness, that they're busy, is also an aspect of their gift, which is to be mover and shakers. What other um, children could you characterize in that way? Well, you know, it, it, and this was something that we didn't didn't go looking for. You know, you just start to see patterns as you as you try and help these these often you know embattled families because um, this is not an easy situation. You know, we, even getting the you know, little things, it's like getting the children out the door in the morning. Just that's that's hard for any parent, but for these parents, this was just like a battle and. And it was happening every day. I remember one parent saying to me, you know, why does everything have to be so hard? Everything. Nothing's ever easy. For example, I remember working with one little boy who um, would have been diagnosed with obsessive-compulsive issues. Mm-hmm. He was, I, I, I thought of him as just being very, very stuck in his behaviors. And as we simplified his life, and he was the forerunner of many kids that were similar to this. He just started to be a little little guy again that the parents recognized. They said, you know, we've got our little guy back again. He's just, he loves everything to be lined up. He loves everything to be organized. You know, he goes into our kind of our junk drawer and he sets it all to right. You know, and we really love that about him and we missed that as, he's, as he got so stressed and started becoming so stuck on everything. Now we've just got our little organizer back. But then, after a, this is not a this is not a long process, you know. After a month or two, 
one of the things we started recognizing about this little boy, eight years old, was that his genius was for seeing patterns. And he could be, he became really good at math. He'd been failing math. But math is all about patterns. He became really good musically. And he'd hated music before that, music classes in his school. But music is all about patterns and rhythms. But most of all, socially, he became really respected um, in the class and, and became quite popular, actually, from being barely, um, if not unpopular, certainly avoided. Um, the other kids thought he was a bit weird. But he, he became fairly popular, pretty solid in there with, and, uh, with a group of friends because he was reliable. He, he could see a, a pattern of behavior, and if someone was sad um, or someone was being mistreated, he would notice it and he would go right to it, and he would help. So the genius of this little boy in his obsessive and compulsive-like behavior was that of noticing things and doing something about it for friends. Hmm. And that's a, pretty, that's a pretty great genius, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thought to think that a child's challenge or their weakness is really a strength when we take away the stress and simplify their lives. But you know, Jack, there's, 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 there's something um, cooking in society here. And here's, here's the thing. And I, as, you can, as, as you know, Jack, I'm not from the U.S. And I, I know now when you say, here's the thing, you've got to say something good here. That's right. <laughs> so, but here's the thing, is that um, stress is the, is the new normal in children's lives, in families' lives. It's become so ubiquitous that we've stopped noticing it. And and what we're doing is is that we're risking raising a whole generation of emotionally fevered kids. Yeah. And we're risking raising a generation of children who neurologically are, are working out of their fight or flight, freeze or flock responses, rather than out of intelligence, timeliness, empathy, sensitivity, inquiry. These are, these are all qualities of a child that has a balanced life. They have some stress in their lives, some busyness, some downtime. All those qualities of, of inquiry and intelligence and empathy, that requires children to have a balanced life. Now, when stress has become the new normal, when it's almost like parenting has become a competitive sport now, well, it's like a parental arms race that's been going on. And the funny thing is, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I was talking about this. And, um, it was a little bit counterculture. A little bit, people would get it a bit, but now when I talk about this, is overwhelmingly people are seeing that, that this has just become too much, too fast, too soon, too sexy too quick, too early, and that more and more parents are reaching out wanting to know what they can do about it. Yeah. Well, I think that's why I am so glad that you're on our show tonight. We are speaking with Kim John Payne, author of the book Simplicity Parenting, and you can call us here at the studio at 202-588-0893. Now, Kim, one of the things that I've found really striking in your book was where you speak about these emotional fevers that children get. And as parents, we know that. We know there are times when our children just don't seem to be themselves. And I, I would just wanted to ask you if you would say something about these soul fevers and as parents, what we need to do to recognize them. And then once we have a clear sense of what we're um, discussing here, then I'm going to ask you what we can do about them. Well, you know, when I was um, interviewed recently um, for an article um, which was all about helicopter parenting, mm -hmm. and, um, and there's this term, you know, helicopter parenting, where parents hover so much over their children, uh, micromanage their lives so much that the kids, you know, that, that the helicopter 
beating overhead, you, you sort of just can't hear yourself think and you can't, the child can't function um, because they're so hyper-parented. And in that article, that was, that was um, a, a couple of months now, it was, on, it was in Time magazine. In fact, it even made it to the, to the front cover of Time magazine, which shows you how serious this, this issue is and how, how we're really, as a society, trying to look at this now. One of the pieces that Nancy, who wrote that wonderful article, actually left out, I want to tell you about that because this was, it was a pity it was left out, so <laughs> I'll tell you about it now because it relates to the soul fever is that I wonder if, if so-called helicopter parents or just nervous and anxious parents are actually onto something. I wonder if that we, as, as a generation of parents now, know that something is wrong. Something is just not right. It's not okay that our kids are getting this stressed. And... I'll give you an example of that. I was, I was teaching a class recently to a group of experienced educators and they were talking about, um, they were actually not talking about what I was hoping, they were talking about buckets and paper towels. And I went up to them and said, guys, what are you, what are you talking about buckets and paper towels for? I've just set you a, a wonderfully insightful exercise to do <laughs> and you're not doing it. You know? And they said, well, we're amazed that the that three teachers in our group um, all the, um, the school has now issued buckets and paper towels to them because when the kids sit their, their, their tests now, in, it was in Massachusetts, so it was the MCAS, the high stakes testing in Massachusetts, which has to be taught as a part of the No Child Left Intact Act. And the, um, the I never miss an opportunity to say <laughs> the, um, the, they would, so that they didn't have to waste any time they would put buckets down and put paper towels beside them so the children could just get up and vomit into the bucket. That's how nervous they were. And go back and but take their test. And then go back and take the test so they didn't have to waste time leaving the room to vomit. That's a sad and, commentary. And we call this education, you know. I know. And so many parents get nervous and anxious and get accused of being helicopter parents. But instinctually, I think those parents are on the right track. On the other hand, we get told that, look, this is just the new normal. In, in order to get kids ahead, they, have to, they just have to suck it up and get on with it and just, and this is what kids have to face these days. So our heads are being told this, but our hearts are saying, no, this is not right. And, and we hover. But, you know, the only other time we hover over our kids, and you know, parents listening in tonight will know this, when, when we hover over our kids, Jack, when is the only other time? That's when, it's when they're ill. Yeah. We're speaking with Kim Payne here on, on Parenting tonight, and we're going to go to the phones. Robin, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Uh, good evening. Welcome. Good evening. Thank you so much. I just joined your broadcast, so I hope that you hadn't already answered this question. But I have a niece that's going to be four in July, and she has not been clinically diagnosed, but she is sort of all over the place. And I think she's responding to a lot of things going on in the house. My brother isn't working, and, you know, everyone's going through hard economic times. And I was wondering, how do you define stress? And then once you define it, how do you remove it? Just as a lay person, not a child with a clinical diagnosis that's, that's right. going to psychotherapy or something. Thank you. Good question, Robin. Great question, Robin. The, the um, you know... When, you know, probably one of the clearest answers I can give this is, that, is, is to talk about balance. And, and, just, and just bear with me for a minute, because this, I hope, will make sense, is that I grew up in a farming community where the farmers had a crop rotation, where one-third was really planted heavily, one-third was put under cover crop, you know, big, deep planting down to bring up all the good stuff from the soil, and one... Um, was just fallow, was just left to be. And when um, what's going on now for our kids is that is that, that one-third of busy time has become two-thirds and sometimes three-thirds. And so when your niece is in this kind of situation, it, it's, 
it's a um, it's a really helpful thing just to take a bit of a a look a broader look at a child's life, particularly as an aunt. You, you know, it's a bit easier to do that than a parent, isn't it? But parents can do it too. But to sensitively and respectfully with the parents, take a bit of a look at the child's life and say, now, okay, she has a lot of busyness in her life. That's that's perfectly fine. She um, she has, but is she getting another third, which is really deep creative play? Is she able just to have have time where she can just you know those beautiful moments when you can, when a child just goes down into play? And does she have time to just hang out, to just be bored? And one of the things that often gets in the way of allowing a child just to have downtime, and this, this gets towards your question of, of how do we define stress, is that, um, is that is what I call the gift of boredom. You know, when, when a child comes to me, when my kids come to me and say, Dad, there's nothing to do, and I say, oh, that's, that's really, that's, that's a pity. And then 10 minutes later, they come back to me and say, Dad, there's really nothing to do. I think, well, that, that, that's a real pity. And, and in a sense, as a parent, to become more boring than the boredom. And then we're not going to raise a generation of neuro, neurologically damaged or moronic kids if they get bored, because boredom is the precursor to cre- creativity. You only have to wait 10, 20 minutes when a child's really, really bored, and they can break out and doing the most amazing things. Now, for your niece, um, and thanks for, for bearing with me in that, for your niece, the way I define stress and overstress is that, is that when those three aspects of busyness, creativity, and downtime are um, out, um, out of whack, I believe you say, in the United States. And, um, and that's, that's when that kind of slight hyper behavior or you described as, as a child being all over the place starts to um, become more troubling. What do you think? Ah, I think that's a, a really good answer, Kim. And I think the need for children to have that creative play, it's wonderful to think of that as the cover crop, you know, something that draws up from below the surface all this richness uh, that's under the ground of childhood. One of the things that that creative play does, and again, as parents, we instinctually know this, is that, you know, that's when they process a lot of the stuff that's come at them in their busy little days. And they Mm -hmm. play it out, and they make sense of it, and then they can put it aside, and then they can do some basic things like sleep, you know, because they've processed all that's been going on through the day. And they do that through play. That's where it happens. But in this whole question of soul fever that you mentioned, Jack, is that, is that when our kids have got a physical fever, one of the first things that we do is that we quieten things down around them. You know, we slow it down, we quieten it down, we pull the shades, we give them less food, we reduce it. If it's a big fever, we just give them, we give them fluids and we change. We change what's going on around them. Now, I think a lot of our kids have got moderate to high soul or emotional fevers. And it's, it's just, I think that the, the, um, it's, it's, it's time to really recognize this. As a society, we've just gone too far. And what's happening is that we've gone so far, it's become, as I was saying, it's become normal. But not only that, is that we do it out of a often when I ask parents, why? why? Why do we buy into this stuff? The answer is, well, if we don't, there's really two main answers that I, that I hear. And I understand both, of course. One is, well, if we give our kid more downtime and more creative time, they're not going to be popular with the other kids because all the other kids are doing this. Now, what I've discovered over the years is that when you have a calm, centered, empathetic, kid, they're often right in the middle of, of the, the social group, and they are what I think of as enduringly popular. Not popular according to the, the latest iPod they've got or the latest gadget, but actually enduringly popular. So in simplifying our kids' lives, we help our kids 
get, be respected and popular. And the other argument I hear is, well, if we don't do this, our kids aren't going to get into good colleges. And I understand that, you know, as a parent, of course I understand that. But exactly the opposite is true. Busy, stressed kids work out of the ancient brain. They work out of a part of the brain called the amygdala, which is the reptilian brain. They're in fight or flight, as I mentioned. And in order to have our kids function out of the thinking part of our brain, out of the smart part of the brain, we need to give them more downtime, more creative time, and that makes them smarter in general. So a calm kid is a smart kid. A stressed kid is a kid in fight or flight. So if a parent is choosing to enroll their child in a class that's going to either make them popular or a team at the risk of stressing them or going to put them in a class with the hope that it will help them get ahead in school, that those are the kind of things that, that you're referring to when you say that uh, we're just making our children stressed by, by doing, by just keeping them too busy. Yeah, not only, not only that, one parent said to me recently when they finally got off the treadmill of buying their kids all the latest stuff, yeah. all the latest clothes, all the latest gadgets to be popular, is um, <laughs> they, they just saved a lot of money. And, um, and, they, and they noticed how their child started to get, and this was her comment, more of the kind of friends that I was hoping my child would make and not more of the kind of friends who were just into this sort of very fast-paced, slightly risky lifestyle. We're speaking tonight with Kim Payne, and Kim is the author of the book Simplicity Parenting. He's our guest on On Parenting, and our number here at the studio is 202-588-0893. Now, Kim, I just want to come back here and, and talk about these soul fevers, because in your book, you say that when our children get these soul fevers, another thing that we can do, we can quiet them down and we can bring them close. Would you say a little bit about bringing them close? Yeah, one of the things that, that um, I've noticed with my kids is that, is that after they've you know, had a fever and I've you know, sat with them through the night, cleaned up, <laughs> and just been with them, that you, you develop something. It's almost like relational credit. Get closer to them, yeah. and, and one of the things that 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 um, is a wonderful outcome of simplicity parenting is that parents report to me over and over again. They talk about how much closer they are with their children, and how the relationship improves, and also um, how discipline. If there's ever a need to correct the child and bring them back into line, how much more malleable how much easier that is to do when they don't have a child who is, is you know, fighting them back in that kind of fight response. And so the relationships, and it's a really great part of, uh, it's a real privilege to be able to work with um, parents and hear this over and over again, and how family life really reestablishes itself because simplicity parenting is... It's a, it's a great thing to do, but really what it's all about is, is connecting to our own deeper values as they play out in one of the most, the most important aspects of our lives, and that's with our children. Simplicity and simplicity parenting is, is not a, a, it, it's not a set of rules. It's not another parenting book um, that's just going to make you feel bad about what you're doing. I mean, as parents, we're perfectly good enough at beating ourselves up. Um, what, what I have really tried hard to do over these years and in writing the book was to say to parents, look, we, we deep, deep within us, in our core values, we know what we want for our kids. Only a lot of stuff gets in the way. A lot of just too many toys, too many books, too many clothes, too many activities. Too, many, too much TV, too many screens, too much adult conversation, too much of a lot of stuff gets in the way, too much work. And what, what I'm suggesting with Simplicity Parenting is that, is that it's a way of simplifying that brings us into 
a much greater connectedness with what we really want in our lives and for our children. And the wonderful piece about that is that when parents start operating out of that space, rather than the space of feeling pushed around by, by what society is, 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 is um, telling us we've got to do and, and the trends that blow through society, um, what happens is that we're, we're much more authentic. And that's a, that's a word we hear a lot these days. We're much more authentic. But we truly are. But we're being authentic to our own values, not the values of some book and some parenting trend, but what we really want. So that when we tell our kids, you know, honey, you just crossed the line. You know, you, you, you can't speak like that to your little brother. Or um, we make a decision when they're pushing us to want to play in that year-round travel team, or they're pushing, and they're pushing, and we, and we, and we say well, what it is that's going to happen. We're standing on very, very firm ground, and that's just wonderful to hear from so many parents that they come to a much more solid place operating out of their own values. Oh, that's a great thought. Kim, we're going to take a break now, public service time, and when we come back... I'm going to look forward to speaking with you some more here on, on Parenting. Let's see. What did I do with it? Where could I have put it? Oh, gosh, what about in here? I, oh, maybe it's in here. I mean, it's driving me nuts. Where did I put it? Hmm. Did you miss your favorite WPFW news or public affairs program? Did you only catch a part of it or simply want to re-experience it? Well, now you can, as WPFW archives all of its news and public affairs programs for later listening. Democracy Now! and Spectrum Today will be archived within 24 hours of their original broadcast and available for your listening for five days. Our many public affairs programs, which include We Ourselves, Natural Living, The Night Wolf Show, Mind Talk, and many others, will be archived within 72 hours of their original broadcast and available for your listening for 14 days. To listen to an archived program, go to www.wpfw.org, click on Programming, then click on Archive, and then simply click Play next to the program that you want to listen to. Another service made possible by the member supporters of WPFW, your Pacifica station for jazz and justice, serving the collective needs and imagination of the community. Well, good evening. This is Jack Petras, your host on On Parenting, and welcome back to our March show. And we're speaking tonight with Kim John Payne, the author of Simplicity Parenting. Kim, we were talking before the break about these fevers, soul fevers in children's lives, and how being close to our children can just be the most rewarding experience, just reminding us of all that we value in this important work of raising our children. It was a wonderful thought. And um, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about these soul fevers. Um, your thoughts on what's causing them in children, aside from the busyness. You were mentioning um, toys. And is it that children have just so much stuff? Yeah, you know, one of the, um, one of the things that... Uh, one of the, 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 the nicknames I got in my, my family practice, which is an unfortunate nickname, was Dr. Trashbag. Uh-huh. <laughs> the reason for that was that um, I, as a part of my practice, I'd go into people's homes, and we'd spend some, some hours together there, and we'd talk about how to simplify. Because I became more and more convinced as the years went on that simplifying was the key to reclaiming our families. And... Um, we, I, I would always have some trash bags with me, and we'd go into a child's bedroom, and uh, you know, the, the, the child was out on a you know, playing, and we'd go in and we'd have a look. And, and the average child in in the U.S. has over 150 toys. I started counting. Now, I mean 150, but I mean like like 100 blocks. That just counts as one, <laughs> you know. And there are toys and books and clothes, and we. We have just this avalanche of stuff, and so we would start clearing it out. And I'd open the trash bag and I'd say, you know, "Let's put let's put half the toys in here." And we'd 
good half in, you know, all the annoying ones, all the, the ones that a parent is just really happy to get rid of. Um, and I say, excellent. Now let's let's put half half again in. And say, really? And say, yeah. And so we'd get rid of, we'd, we'd cull it right down, you know, 20, 30 toys. And, there was, and then they were the keepers, but we'd put them in, then what we'd do is we'd, we'd take some out, put them in a box, put them in a bag, and we would have like a rotating toy library. And some toys would rotate in, and then others would rotate out. And we'd do the same with books. I remember one mother saying to me, but we're a, we're a family that loves to read. How could we possibly only leave our child with three or four books? And I said to her, you know, because she said to me, you know, my child reads seven or eight books at once. And I said to her, and the diagnosis was, and she said, yeah, I know, ADHD. <laughs> and, and, and I said, look, if we want our children to have a lifelong love of reading, they need to deep, to, to, to dig down deep into one or two books and read them and really, really be nourished by them rather than just scanning over 10, you know, 7, 8, 9, 10 books. Same with clothes getting it all back, um, just pulling it all back. And uh, after 25 years of doing, this is just one of the four, what I've come to recognize as the four layers, the four pathways to simplicity, clothes, boys, and books, and toys are just one of them. But, you know, after this kind of a Christmas scene <laughs> in a child's space, mm -hmm. they come back in, and many parents think, oh boy, this is not going to be good. And the, the the children normally say things like, cool, oh, that's great. And they play better. They've got more space to play. They love it when old friends, um, the toys and books, get, get cycled back in and others get cycled out. And it's a much, much more enjoyable space for the kids to be. But, you know, many of, the, of your listeners, Jack, will know this saying, um, from Gandhi, as Gandhi and saying, "If we must become the change we wish to see," it's a, it's a real drag. Um, and <laughs> and one of the things that many parents get onto pretty quickly is that is they see how lovely that is for the children, and they start simplifying their own spaces. Normally, there's one parent who's more happy to do it than the other. If there's two parents in a family, but. Um, and the place just becomes a much more restful, peaceful place to be. So that's, and that's a, that's a way of, I would, over the years, I've, all, I've challenged almost any parent to go stand in the doorway of their children's room and, and, and really not be able to have the thought of, man, if there was less stuff in here, this would be a nicer place. It's like the, the TMS challenge, the too much stuff challenge. Mm -hmm. Just have a look and see what you think. You know, I can just picture the child's room uh, without all of the toys and without all of the books. For the young child, what a wonderful, calm, and peaceful place the room will be. But when I think of the teenagers today, and it's not necessarily that there's stuff everywhere, but of course there is, but their life with their electronic world is just on the go. They're multitasking. What can a parent do when a child's on their cell phone and they're texting and they're on their computer and they're, mm -hmm. uh, you know, four windows are open and, you know, yep. what, what can and, you do? And you don't mean windows to let in fresh air, right? No, I don't at all. That's no. right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if, if, if you caught the, um, the, the recent article. It was, in the, it was on, in the New York Times, but it was also, uh, it came from the Kaiser Family Foundation website. Wonderful um, website. And... Um, it was, talk, it was quoting a study that's saying our, our kids now, are between, it quoted the average hours that our, per day that our children spend in front of screens. That's TVs, computers, Game Boys, Xboxes, and so on. And it was seven and a half hours a day between the age of eight and 16, I believe it was. And that's excluding texting, which was an hour and a half, and then half an hour for using the phone for actually talking for a to do that and um so it's nine and a half hours and that also excludes time in front of screens at school so when you when you add that up it's kind of pretty much every waking hour and you know my answer to that is that it, 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 
probably best explained in an example. A, a mother brought her child, as a young man, 14 years old, into um, my practice, and she was very concerned with what she thought was becoming a, a worrying amount of time that he was spending every day. It was probably five to seven hours a day in front of screens collectively, uh, including uh, you know phones, or little screens, big screens, and worried about the la- that, that she was just losing her connection with him. Anyway, he said to me, Screens are just everywhere. They're in airports, they're in doctor's surgery clinics, they're, um, they're in gas stations. Every single one of my friends has got like, a, like TVs and computers and why can't I? Like why, why does my mum want to take it away from me? I said, really, everywhere? He said, yeah, like totally everywhere, dude. They are everywhere. I said, are you sure? And he said, I'm completely sure. So I said to him, well, not having computers and TVs and screens in your home, like your mum wants to do, is really no big deal then. And the withering look, this boy (laughs) shot me. Because what I'm talking about here is that it's true. Screens are everywhere, and they are brain poison to our kids. The research is just completely overwhelming in pointing out the neurological damage this is doing to our kids. And my point here is that having home, if, if, if screens are everywhere, home needs to be a place of decompression. We know that we need balance in everything. We need to, if we overeat, that's not okay. We need a balance between exercise and eating, between waking and sleeping. But we also need a balance between screen time and non-screen time. We need a balance between busyness and quietness. Now, if screens are everywhere, like most teenagers will tell us, if music and busyness and gadgets are everywhere, I think if we really are going to be courageous and care about our kids, we're going to be able to say, okay, you get all that stuff, but you don't get it here. This is a place of decompression. Now, as outlandish as that seems, some of your listeners might be thinking, hang on, how can I ever back out of this with my 16-year-old? She is completely plugged in. The way to unplug is to, is to make small little kind of beach heads in this, little trail heads, and have an un... Just try it and have an unplugged supper. Yeah. Just unplug. Turn, the, turn everything off. Even turn the call screening off. Turn the cell phones off, the Blackberries off, everything off and just experience a quiet supper and hang in there for a couple of weeks. It usually takes two to three weeks of insisting that this is going to be the way it is and that, yeah, okay, we're weird and, okay, fine. Because those supper times are what families are built around. Those, they're, they're, they're amazing times, aren't they, Jack? With your, with your boys, you had, that was a, a point of connectedness. Well, the, the research on on the benefits of eating supper as a family, it's just astounding. They, um, the one that I remember is the, they did a study on Merit Scholar winners and they wanted to know what these kids had in common. And they found two things. They found that they listened to Lincoln-sponsored radio, like WPFW. Yeah, I'm uh, glad you put that one. Uh, or they also they found that their families ate dinner together. Yep. And um, this time of interchange. You know, I'm remembering, Kim, this, uh, a book that I read years ago by Mary Piper called The Shelter of Each Other, where it's a a great book, and she suggests that you have one electronic free night. And I remember thinking back then, yes. But I think about it now, and I think, could people really do that? What do you think? They are, and they are doing it. We've, out of of our center, which you know is called the Center for Social Sustainability, we're, um, we're now training simplicity parenting group leaders and it's almost like you know group support because there are more and more and more parents who want to to get their families back, get it back in shape, get it back in whack. And out of our centre, we're training simplicity parenting group leaders who convene just you know they're really small groups. They're ten, fifteen, twenty people, but there are dozens and dozens and dozens of them springing up all around North America, and. 
um, there are so many parents now who are establishing that, that one night of, of screen-free, electronic-free, media-free, and after doing it for one, you can grow it, and they do. And there are more and more parents who, who are gaining strength from each other and are starting to simplify in this way without being thought of, you know, in the past you might have been thought of as being weird or some hippie or whatever it was. Now, that, that gets interest. People are interested in this. And I think partly, you know, before the recent economic troubles, simplicity might have been an, might have been an option. But for many folk now, it's a necessity. We just, we, we kind of bought into the great American dream, you know, and I increasingly, I think of it as, as what's been shown recently, it's the great American anxiety dream. And a lot of people want to wake up out of that anxiety dream and simplify their lives. And so these simplicity parenting groups, and people can, um, if they want to know if there's a group in their area, they can just go onto the simplicityparenting.com website and that connects them up with a group in their area. That is a fantastic way to start, to not feel like you're on your own with this, that there are other and many other like-minded parents who are struggling or who can give each other tips and help. And um, it's, 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 really this, this, it's really a movement that is, that is growing rapidly around the country. That's oh, wonderful to hear. And it reminds me of the, um, the slow movement. You're talking about slow parenting. It's just a wonderful thought that we would actually slow our lives down sufficiently that we could have this meaningful relationship with our children where if we put those screens aside, we actually would have a conversation with them. Well, it, it, the interesting thing is that, you know, in, 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 you know, in simplifying uh, a family's life, it's not that I'm suggesting we, we're going back to Little House on the Prairie, that we're actually kind of going backwards, that we've got it all wrong and now we've got to go back. Actually, the comment I hear over and over from parents over these years of doing this is how when a child's life is simplified like this, they, they develop really strong values, their own little values of what they know is wrong and right, not what media is telling them they must have or they must believe or the way they must dress or must um, like totally like speak. They, they develop their own values, are respected by their friends for it. But the piece that's crucial here is that it is a reality that life is, you know, got aspects that are tough, that are tougher probably, probably than when you and I grew up. But it, this, this in, in simplifying for our kids, in our kids' lives, we actually give them a very precious gift, and that's the gift of resiliency. And we give them that kind of resiliency so they can go out and face fast-paced life. Not, not withdraw from it, not deny it, not wish it was any, it, it wasn't the case, but actually be able to face it, cope with it, and navigate. And simplicity helps our kids do that, not complexity. Yeah. What better gift can we give them, Kim? Mm, really. Kim, I want to thank you for being our guest tonight here on On Parenting. And it's just a pleasure to speak with you and a pleasure to read your new book. And I want again to remind our listeners, Simplicity Parenting by Kim John Payne, using the extraordinary power of less to raise calmer, happier, more secure kids. Thank you, Kim. Thanks, Jack. Just a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show and to hear your voice. You be well. You too. Bye-bye right, now. Bye. Well, tonight's talk with Kim Payne uh, on On Parenting, simplifying our children's lives to give them health and resilience, to make them strong, to face the complexity of the world that they're going to live in, and um, just good thoughts. Now, it's that time where we're going to slide over to our Bobby McFerrin and get ready for our story.
And now a story from Kalanji Alushagoon, Br'er Rabbit story. This is another Bear Rabbit story. In olden days, the creatures used to plow the fields and plant their crops same as men folks. When the rains came, the crops were good. But one year, no rain came, and there was a famine in the land. The sun boiled down like a red ball of fire. All the creeks and ditches and springs dried up. All the fruit on the trees shriveled, and there was no food and drinking water for the creatures. It was a terrible time. But there was one place where there was plenty of food and a spring that never ran dry. It was called Clayton Field. And in the field stood a big pear tree, just a hanging down with juicy pears, enough for everybody. So the poor hungry creatures went over to the field to get something to eat and something to drink. But a great big Bengal tire lived under the pear tree. And when the creatures came nigh, he rose up and said, I'll eat you up. I'll eat you up if you come here. All the creatures backed off and crawled to the edge of the woods and sat there with misery in their eyes, looking at the field. They were so starved and so parched that their ribs showed through their hides and their tongues hung out of their mouths. Now, just about that time, along came Bear Rabbit, just a-hopping and a-skipping as if he'd never been hungry or thirsty in his life. Say, what's the matter with you creatures? asked Bear Rabbit. We're hungry and thirsty and can't find any food or water. That's what's the matter with us, answered the creatures. And we can't get into Clayton Field because Bear Tiger said he'd eat us up if we came over there. Mm, that's not right, said Bear Rabbit. It's not right for one animal to have it all and the rest to have nothing. Come here, come close. I'm going to tell you something, Bear Rabbit jumped up on a stump so that all could see him as they crowded round. Then Bear Rabbit had finished whispering his plan. He said, Now, you all be at your post in the morning. Everyone be there before sunup. The first animal to get to his post was Bear, Bear. Before daybreak he came tooting a big club on his shoulder and took his place alongside an old hollow log. The next creature to arrive was Bear Alligator Cooter, a snapping turtle who crawled in the log. Then Bear Turkey Buzzard and Bear Eagle and all the big fowls of the air came a-sailing in and roosting on the tops of the tall trees. Next to arrive were the tree-climbing animals like Bear Raccoon and his family and Sis Possum and all her little ones. They climbed into the low trees. Then followed the littler creatures like Bear Squirrel, Bear Muskrat, bear otter, and all kinds of birds. They all took their posts and waited for Bear Rabbit. There was Bear Bear, a-beating on the hollow log with all his might. Pick-a-boom, 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 bam-bam. Inside the log, Bear Cooter was a-jumping. Pick-a-boom, 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 boom-boom. Bear Turtle Buzzard, Bear Eagle, and Bear Chicken Hawk were a-flapping their wings and a-shaking the big trees and the trees were a-bending, and the leaves were a-flying. Bear Raccoon and Sis Possum were stirring up a fuss in the low trees, while the little creatures were a-shaking all the bushes. And on the ground, and amongst the leaves, the teeny-weeny creatures were a-scrambling round. All in all, it sounded like a cyclone was a-coming through the woods. Pretty soon, when the sun was about half-hour high, along came Bear Rabbit down the road with a long grass rope wrapped around his shoulder. And he was just a-singing. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, there's a great big wind. It's a-coming through the woods. It's a-going to blow all the people off the earth. And while he was singing his song, a powerful noise broke out in the woods. All this racket so early in the morning woke Bear Tiger out of a deep sleep, and he rushed to the big road to see what was going on. What's going on out there, huh? He growled. What's going on out there? All of the creatures were too scared to say anything to Bear Tiger. They just looked at him and hollered for Bear Rabbit to tie me, please, please, sir, tie me. Now all this time, Bear Rabbit just kept a hollering. 
There's a great big cyclone a-coming through the woods that's going to blow all the people off the earth. And the animals just kept a-making their noise and hollering, Tie me, Bear Rabbit! Tie me! Then Bear Rabbit came around by Bear Tiger. Bear Tiger roared out, Bear Rabbit, I want you to tie me. I don't want the big wind to blow me off the earth. I don't have time to tie you, Bear Tiger. I've got to go down to the road and tie those other folks to keep the wind from blowing them off the earth. Because it sure looks to me like a great big hurricane is a-coming through these woods. Bear Tiger looked towards the woods where Bear Bear was a-beating and Bear Cooter was a-jumping and the birds were a-flapping and the trees were a-bending and the leaves were a-flying and the bushes were a-shaking and the wind was a-blowing and it seemed to him as if Judgment Day had come. Old Bear Tiger was so scared he couldn't move. And then he said to Bear Rabbit, look a here I got my head up against this pine tree. It won't take but a minute to tie me to it. Please, tie me, Bear Rabbit. Tie me, because I don't want the wind to blow me off the face of the earth. Bear Rabbit shook his head. Bear Tiger, I don't have time to bother with you. I've got to go and tie those other folks, I told you. I don't care about those other folks, said Bear Tiger. I want you to tie me so the wind won't blow me off the earth. Look, Bear Rabbit, I've got my head here against this tree. Please, sir, tie me. All right, Bear Tiger, just hold still a minute, and I'll take out time to save your striped hide, said Bear Rabbit. Now, while all this talking was going on, the noise kept getting louder and louder. Somewhere back yonder, it sounded like thunder was a-rolling. Bear, Bear was still a-beating on the log. Pick-a-boom, 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 bam-bam. Bear Cooter was still a-jumping in the log. Pick-a-boom, 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 boom-boom. And the birds were a-flapping, and the trees were a-bending, and the leaves were a-flying, and the bushes were a-shaking, and the creatures were a-crying, and Bear Rabbit was a-tying. He wrapped the rope around Bear Tiger's neck, and he pulled it tight. He wrapped it around Bear Tiger's feet, and he pulled it tight. Then Bear Tiger tried to pitch and rear, and he asked Bear Rabbit to tie him a little tighter, because I don't want the big wind to blow me off the earth. So... Bear Rabbit wrapped him round and round so tight that even the biggest cyclone in the world couldn't blow him away. And then Bear Rabbit backed off and looked at Bear Tiger. When he saw that Bear Tiger couldn't move, Bear Rabbit called out, Hush your fuss, children. Stop all of your crying. Come down here. I want to show you something. Look, here's your great Bear Tiger. He had all the pears and all the drinking water and all of everything, enough for everybody. But he wouldn't give a bite of food or a drop of water to anybody, no matter how much they needed it. So now, Bear Tiger, you just stay there till these ropes drop off you. And you children, gather up your crocus sacks and water buckets. Get all the pears and drinking water you want, because the good Lord doesn't love a stingy man. He put the food and water here for all his creatures to enjoy. After the animals had filled their sacks and buckets, they all joined in the song of thanks to the Lord for their leader, Bear Rabbit, who had shown them how to work together to defeat their enemy, Bear Tiger. It's a great story by, told by Kalanje Lushigon. And with that telling of another Bear Rabbit tale, we come to the end of our show. And a time for thank yous. I want to thank our engineers, John and T, for their fine work in the studio. I want to thank our guest, Kim John Payne, for being with us tonight to speak about his new book, Simplicity Parenting, an excellent book. And I want to thank Kalanji Lushigun for his fine told story. And as we get ready now to turn the microphone over to Rusty Hassan and Monday Night Jazz, I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in tonight to On Parenting. We'll be back the third Monday of the month in April. And I want to say goodnight to my third graders at the Washington Waldorf School and say, children, may the stars watch over you. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and the daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but they are not from you. And though they are with you, they belong not to you. Thank you for listening to another edition of On Parenting. They have their own
WPFW, Washington.